if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, then Satan doesn't want people to hear it, right? And so, one of Satan's primary strategies to keep people from hearing the gospel message that saves is to distort it, to to muddy the waters, to add to it. He loves to be behind putting forth perversions of the true gospel message. In fact, Satan is not threatened by Christian bookstores and pulpits and TV programming if the wrong message is going forth. And so it is of utmost importance that you and I, who believe the Bible, who believe the gospel really is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, it is imperative that you and I preserve the gospel message. And I want you to see this in Galatians chapter 2. After two weeks, we are jumping back into the book of Galatians, continuing our study line by line, verse by verse, through this wonderful New Testament letter. Galatians chapter 2. This is Paul's letter to churches throughout uh, the Roman province of Galatia in the first century. We find ourselves in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. You know, last week we gathered together, and on Easter, it was a glorious weekend, we celebrated uh, the reality that Jesus is alive. And here's the good news. You ready? One week later, He's still alive. Amen? He's still alive. Now look with me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that, now look at this, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now fast forward to verse 11. But when Cephas, Aramaic for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came uh, from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Fascinating. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a faith family and to proclaim with one voice and with one heart, Jesus saves. Jesus is the reason that we're here and Jesus is the center of attention. 
So give us grace by your Spirit to lift up the mighty and strong name of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand your word as you open the eyes of our hearts by your Spirit and give us the inclination to respond to what you show us. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. Lord, have your way in this place. Change our lives for your glory. And we ask and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in the churches in Galatia, he is dealing with an issue that had uh, risen up in those churches. False teachers had infiltrated the churches. And they said basically, hey, we heard that you're Christians, that you believe in Christ. That's great. But if you really want to be right with God, not only do you need Jesus, you need to be circumcised and to keep the Jewish law. And they were adding on to the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone. And so Paul is writing to correct uh, this false teaching and to let them know you should not buy into this false gospel. You should not allow the gospel to be distorted. That's where we find ourselves uh, in chapter 2. Now, at the end of chapter 1, Paul shares a little bit about his autobiography, uh, how he was saved and how he was uh, taught by the Lord in the wilderness and then he went back home to Tarsus. But then he tells a little bit more of his story and he shares two interesting examples of how the gospel was tested and he was a part of that or in, right in the middle of that. And, and these two situations threatened to muddy the waters of the gospel, bringing confusion and disunity. Now, the first situation he mentions is found in verse 1, uh, going through verse 10, and it is the meeting in Jerusalem. Uh, after Paul spent some time in Tarsus, he went up to Jerusalem. And he says there in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Now, what does that mean? He went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Well, this probably refers to Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Paul had made his way to Antioch with Barnabas to see the work that God was doing there in that city. And it says in Acts 11, In these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this prophet came and said, there's a great famine. The Christians in Judea are struggling. They need some help. And so they took up a collection and they sent it to Jerusalem by Barnabas and Saul. That's probably the revelation that brought him to Jerusalem that he refers to there in Galatians chapter 2. And when he arrives in Jerusalem... Uh, there is a confrontation dealing with the gospel. He brought a companion with him, Titus, who was a Greek. He was not a Jew. And some of the Judaizers, some of the, the folks that believed you needed Jesus plus uh, Judaism to be saved, they said, well, if, if listen, if this Titus guy you're bringing with you, if he really wants to be right with God, he needs to be circumcised to be a part of the covenant. So there's a, a gospel issue there in this meeting in Jerusalem. But not only that... At the end of this section, in verses 11 through 14, there's another situation. It's a confrontation in Antioch. After Jerusalem, Paul goes back to Antioch, and Peter comes to Antioch to visit, and there's a confrontation between those two uh, because Peter uh, hypocritically will not eat with Gentiles because he's afraid of what the Judaizers might 
think. Now, these two situations are related, and we know because there are some similar phrases found in both situations. The first is the word forced. Look what it says there in verse 3. Even Titus, who was with us, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So some folks were trying to force Titus to be circumcised, again, in quotes, if he really wanted to be right with God. They were trying to add to the gospel of justification by faith alone. But look down with me in verse 14 of this same chapter. It says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So in both situations, Jerusalem and Antioch, there are some folks trying to force other folks to do something to be right with God. So that ties these two situations together. There's another phrase that ties these two situations together. Look with me in verse 5 when Paul writes, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Notice that phrase, the truth of the gospel. So Paul is standing up against false teaching for the truth of the gospel, to preserve the truth of the gospel. And look in verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So in both situations, we see there's some folks trying to force other folks to do something to be right with God, adding on to the gospel. And in both situations, the truth of the gospel is at stake. So these are similar situations that Paul found himself in the middle of it. And what I want to do is I want to just look at these two situations briefly together And I want to highlight three truths about the gospel. Three truths about the gospel we find in this passage. Number one, the gospel will be tested. The gospel will be tested. Again, in Jerusalem, the gospel is tested. In Antioch, the gospel is tested. Different situations, but in both situations, the truth of the gospel is at stake. Now, why is the gospel always going to be tested? Why do we have to be on guard to preserve the truth of that message? Well, first of all, because of man's pride. Because of man's pride. There's something in man that doesn't want to humble himself and say, I bring nothing to the table. I I need Jesus completely. I can't save myself. It's humbling to say that, isn't it? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that understand their spiritual poverty, that they add nothing or contribute nothing to their salvation. They need Jesus to save them. They need to place all of their trust and all of their hope in Christ alone and in his finished work. And so there's something in man that says, okay, that sounds good, but surely I can do something to contribute. I mean, I'm not a bad person, you know, if, if I do the right things and my good outweighs my bad, then surely God will like me or show me favor or accept me. And there's something about man's pride that wants to add on to the gospel, not accept it by faith. And so because of man's pride, which is just as real today as it was in the first century, there are always going to be attempts to add on to the gospel, to add some human effort to the gospel of justification by faith alone. But not only because of man's pride, but because of Satan's devices, the gospel will be tested. Look what it says in verse 4. Because of false brothers secretly, notice that word, secretly brought in 
who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so, they, so that they might bring us into slavery. You notice those words? It sounds like a spy novel, doesn't it? False brothers secretly sneaking in and listening to the conversation between Paul and the leaders in the Jerusalem church and spying out their freedom and adding to the gospel. Uh, this, to me, sounds like Satan's devices. You understand, don't you, that ultimately our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers of the air. And Satan loves to scheme, Ephesians 6. He loves to strategize to dilute and distort and muddy the waters of the gospel. Because he doesn't want people to hear the good news message. And so... Satan here is behind this, I believe, these false teachers, this scheme of infiltrating and and leading people astray. We need to understand that intrigue and stealth are utilized by the enemy. He loves to distort the gospel. You see, the gospel is a simple message. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He took all of our sin on himself and took the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin that we deserve. He took that punishment for us. He is our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He, he died in our place, right? And then he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. Oh, oh grave, where's your sting? Oh, oh, grave, where's your victory? Jesus Christ has defeated death. He's alive today. And if anyone from any tribe, any tongue, any background, any ethnicity, any socioeconomic level, if anyone sees their need and turns to Christ and says, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you're my only hope. I trust in you and your finished work. They will be saved. It's a simple message. And Satan loves to scheme and strategize to muddy the waters and add to it and distort it. The gospel will be tested. I had about six months between my graduation from college and my wedding day when I got married to Claire. So I was trying to save up some money because I knew after we got married we are going to move up to this area and start seminary and, and Claire was going to start pharmacy school. And so I was just trying to save up money in those six months. So one of the jobs I had during that time was a substitute teacher. It gets better. A substitute teacher in middle school. Apparently, not many people wanted to be a substitute teacher in middle school. So there are lots of opportunities. And someone told me, this was good advice, they said, said uh, Wade, you need to understand that kids will test you. When they know there's a sub in the classroom, it's like fresh meat. So listen, go in there and start off mean. I mean, you got to be mean at first, all right? And, and set the stage and let them know you're not fooling around. And then you can light up a little bit, but don't go in there passive. They will eat you alive. I had kids say things to me as a substitute teacher. One time a kid said something so bad, I just laughed. I said, I can't believe you're talking to me like this. I mean, it was crazy, all right? But, but I knew I would be tested. It's what kids do with substitute teachers. We need to understand the gospel is the message of salvation found in Christ, and Satan hates it, and man's pride wants to add to it, and so it will be tested. Every generation, listen, every generation has to stand for the truth of the gospel. But here's the second 
reality about the gospel. The gospel will be tested. Secondly, the gospel must be preserved. Why is it imperative that you and I preserve the true gospel? First of all, we need to preserve the gospel so that the next generation can be impacted by it. Look what it says in verse 5. Paul says, To them, these Judaizers, the one to add to the gospel, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. We did not waver so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Isn't that interesting? Paul's saying the reason we stood against this distortion of the gospel is because we wanted to maintain its purity so we could preach it to you. So you could be changed by it. So you could be transformed by it. We, we understood that, that, that if we don't preserve the gospel, then we've got no good news for others. And that certainly applies to generations. We've got generations coming behind us that need to hear the true gospel, need to respond to the true gospel, build their lives and churches on the true gospel. And if we lose the gospel, we've got no gospel to share with them. The reason that we are losing generations is because we are not standing on the true gospel and proclaiming it. And so we need to preserve the gospel so that the next generation can be impacted by it. We need to preserve the gospel so that the nations will hear it. Look in verse 9. Peter and uh, Paul had this conversation in... uh, Verse 6, he says, From those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to, to me. God shows no partiality. He's talking about the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentile world, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jewish world. For he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. The leaders in the church of Jerusalem, when I stood for the gospel, they understood God had called me to go as a missionary to the Gentile world. It's like Paul had called, I mean, God had called Peter to go to the Jewish world with the gospel. So what Paul's saying here is this. If, if I don't have the truth of the gospel, I don't, if I don't have the real gospel in my hand, how am I going to impact the uncircumcised? How am I, how am I going to impact the Gentile world? I'm, I'm called to go with him and preach the gospel, but if the gospel is not pure... I have no gospel to preach. No good news to share. And so we must preserve the gospel so that the nations will hear it. I prayed for a people group this morning in West Africa. It was on some of my Joshua Project feed. And this people group, millions of people, I think it was like 3 million people in this people group, uh, 0.007% Christian in that people group, it's predominantly Muslim. And most of those people in that people group have little or no access to the gospel. And if we lose the gospel, we've got nothing to take to them. No good news that Jesus saves by his grace through faith. Third, we need to preserve the gospel to promote unity. Look in verse 9. They said, when James and Cephas and John, these leaders in the Jerusalem church who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they're saying, you know what, Paul, you're right. 
If you were to have Titus circumcised, this, this would be giving into the Judaizers and would be watering down or mudding the waters of the gospel. We believe that you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, based upon his grace alone. So we agree, James and Peter say, we should not add to the gospel. And they shake hands and they say, let's go preach it to the Gentiles and the Jews. They're on the same page. They believe the same thing. When I was studying this, I thought about Ephesians 4 that says... We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism. The message of the gospel unites us. It puts us on the same page. We believe the same thing. We're proclaiming the same thing. We're living for the glory of the same one. So we should preserve the gospel to promote unity. Let me tell you how to divide a church. Let false teaching infiltrate that adds to the gospel. Get people confused and take their eyes off of Jesus. And that's when you bring division into a church. The true gospel, when we believe it, we sing about it, we preserve it, we stand on it, we're, we're all on the same page, right? It's unifying. There's another thing here. Preserve the gospel to maintain our freedom. Look in verse 4. Yeah, because the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. That's interesting. You know what Paul's saying there? These Judaizers slipped in and they didn't like the fact that we were free. And they wanted to put us under a yoke of bondage and say, Yeah, Jesus, that's great. Glad you believe in him. But if you really want to be right with God, start checking the boxes of religion. Be circumcised. Keep the law. Keep the feast. Keep the festivals. If you really want to be right with God, and if your performance matches up, then maybe, just maybe, God will accept you. They wanted to put Titus and these other Gentile Christians under a yoke of works. They wanted to take away their freedom. You see, apart from Christ, you are enslaved to your performance. Your master is the requirement of the law, which you are not capable of keeping perfectly. In other words, if you don't trust in Christ, then your salvation is up to you. And you can't save yourself. That's miserable, right? My salvation is up to me to just do enough good things, and I'm not good enough to do it. I fall short of the glory of God because I've got sin in my life. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that Christ has done everything necessary to save you. So you can rest in Christ and have joy. I, I, by God's grace, want to live for the Lord. I want to walk with Him and talk with Him and serve Him and share Christ and, and, and make a difference. But, but I'm not trying to live for the Lord so God will like me more. Or God will show me favor or accept me. Listen, I want to live for the Lord because God's already accepted me in Christ. Grace! I've experienced grace. And because of that, I'll never be the same. And I want to show my gratitude by living for the Lord. I'm not living under slavery. I've been set free. I'm not trying to be saved. I am saved. So I have joy. And I can rest in what Jesus Christ has done. Let me illustrate. Let's just say that you're in first century Rome. And you're a slave. There were lots of slaves in the Roman Empire. And let's just say that your job was to go into this 
huge field and to remove all the rocks out of the field to, to prepare it for cultivation so that crops could be grown. And there are big rocks in this field, and there are little rocks in this field, and you know it's going to take you months upon months to clear this field. But you go out every day, and you, you lift the big boulders, and you bend down and pick up the small rocks, and, and you're making a little bit of headway every day. And every, way you, every day you walk out, you feel like, oh, I'm not, even, I'm not even making a dent on all the rocks in this field. Let's just imagine that for a moment you walk out one morning, you come to the edge of the field, and all the rocks are gone. They're gone. And you're told, you know what? Your work has been completed by another. The work you could not accomplish in your own strength is finished. Now go inside and rest. And enjoy your freedom. Now how silly would it be if you as a slave in the first century were told that and you said, you know what, I'm going to go find some more rocks. I'm going to go pick up some more rocks. I want my back to ache and hurt, and, and, and I want to keep trying to strive to impress some folks. I'm going to, I'm going to go somewhere and, and find some rocks. I'm going to keep working when the work's already been done. See, these false brothers had slipped into the church and said, You're not free. Yeah, you believe in Jesus. That's great, but you've got to do some other things, too. Paul's saying they were trying to take away our freedom. I want you to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of freedom and joy. And if you're not experiencing, listen to me, if you're not experiencing freedom and joy in your relationship with God, I wonder if you understand the gospel. Christ has finished the work. You can't save yourself. You trust in what Jesus has done for you. That's the good news. But there's a third aspect of this passage that I want you to see. The gospel will be tested. The gospel must be preserved. But third and last, the gospel is in your hands. It's in your hands. Now look with me in verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now notice in verse 7 that phrase, they saw that I had been entrusted. And then it says, they saw that Peter had been entrusted with the gospel. In other words, God had placed the gospel in their hands and said, this is a stewardship issue. What are you going to do with the gospel? Paul, I've called you to go to the Gentiles. Will you go and share that message I've entrusted to you? Peter, you've been been called to go to the, the Jewish world predominantly. Will you go and share that message I've placed in your hands? Will you be a good steward of the gospel? Now, some of you might read that and say, well, of course, they were apostles. That's their job. And and kind of mention it, uh, Pastor Wade, you're a pastor. That's your job, too. So good luck. Let me ask you a question. Who is the gospel entrusted to today? Ephesians 4 gives us some insight when it says that 
God gave apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church to get the church started, to give them the body of truth that we call the New Testament. And then he gave the church gifts, and he says, evangelists that are to go to other places and share the gospel, and point main, pastors, teachers, shepherds, teachers. And why did God give pastors, teachers to the church? It says in verse 12, listen to this, of Ephesians 4. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So it is ultimately my job and your staff's job to equip you with the gospel so you can go out and make a difference with it. That's what the Bible says. So let me say it like this. Listen to me. Coming real close. The gospel is in your hands. It's in your hands. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Well, there's some insight here in this passage. If the gospel is in your hands, then you and I, we, we should grow in our understanding of the gospel. Verse 5, verse 14, he mentions the truth of the gospel. There's truth about the good news. Jesus died. He, he died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And if anyone repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ, they can be saved. That's the good news, the, the truth of the gospel. So we should grow in our understanding of the gospel. Now, here's what's interesting. In the first episode, verses 1 through 10, the, the showdown in Jerusalem about circumcising Titus, the issue was circumcision. And, and circumcision in, in, among the Jews, according to the Jewish law, the Old Testament law we have in our Bibles, was about the covenant. Circumcision was a sign and seal of a covenant relationship with the one true God. That's what it was. The second issue where Paul confronts Peter because he will not eat with Gentiles was about cleanliness. Again, according to the Old Testament law, the Jews said, if, well, if we eat with Gentiles, according to the law, we'll be unclean and we can't come close to God. So let's not eat with those Gentiles so we can maintain our status of cleanliness and have access to God and access to the temple and access to worship. So the first story, Jerusalem's about covenant. Second one issue in Antioch is about cleanliness. Now here's what's amazing about both of those. Covenant and cleansing are both found in Jesus. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. If you believe in me, my blood was shed for you and it will wash away your sin and bring you into this new covenant relationship with God whereby your sins will be forgiven and you'll be made a brand new person. You'll be transformed from the inside out and have a relationship with God that will never end. So you see, there's no need for the old covenant anymore because covenant is found in Jesus alone. Amen? So, so why require circumcision? If we are brought into a covenant relationship only through Christ, now that Christ has come, there's no need to keep maintaining the foreshadowing of Jesus found in the law. What about cleanliness? We're not clean before God because we do this or don't do this or eat with this person or don't eat with that person. 
We're made clean by the blood of Jesus who washes away our sin. Know the truth of the gospel. You don't have to live under the law anymore. The law foreshadowed what Christ would do. It pointed to the reality that Jesus Christ would be our covenant and our cleansing. But now that Christ has come, why keep dealing with the shadow in the Old Testament? So grow in your understanding of the gospel. To add to the gospel is to diminish Jesus and his finished work. There's a second reality if the gospel is in your hands, and it is. Share it. Look in verse 2. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I, watch this word, proclaim among the Gentiles. So Paul comes and says, here's what I've been preaching, folks. You need to understand, I want to make sure we're on the same page here. God showed me this gospel message. I've been preaching it. And he says, I've been proclaiming it. The word there is caruso. It means to publicly, listen to this, publicly announce religious truths and principles while urging acceptance and compliance. So Paul has been saying, I've been proclaiming Jesus saves. I've been urging people to believe in Jesus. That's what I've been doing God put the gospel in my hands. He entrusted me with it, and I've been proclaiming it. So if you and I are going to be good stewards of the gospel, which the Lord has put in our hands, right? We've got to share it. We've got to share it. I would just say to you this morning, if, if you don't share the good news, you're not a good steward of the gospel. You're not a good steward. Share it. Number three, do not yield to false teaching. The gospel is in your hands, so do not yield to false teaching. Notice what the Bible says in verse 5. Paul says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. We did not yield to this false teaching. We didn't give in. We didn't waver. We, we held to the truth. And then in verses 11 through 14, Peter comes to Antioch, and Peter is influenced by these Judaizers, and and Peter didn't really believe that eating with Gentiles would make him unclean. Remember, God had shown Peter in Acts 11, or Acts 10, this vision of the sheet with unclean animals. He says, arise and kill and eat. You no longer have to live under under the the burden of the Old Testament uh, uh, ceremonial laws. And you're free to go to the Gentile world and go to Cornelius and go in his house and eat with him and share the gospel? God had already shown Peter that. Peter knew better. But Peter wanted to please man more than God. So when these influential people from the Jerusalem church came and said, you should not eat with Gentiles, Peter said, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. And so I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles. I'll just eat with the Jews over here. You know what Paul does? Paul calls him on it. Paul said, Peter, you know better. I know about your vision. I I know about you going to Cornelius. I I know what God has taught you. You know that eating with Gentiles will not make you unclean. You're completely clean in Christ. What do we learn from this showdown? Paul calling Peter on hypocrisy. Here's what we learn. Listen to me. No one is above doctrinal accountability. No one. If we're going to 
to stand on the true gospel and never yield to false teaching, we've got to realize that no one is above doctrinal accountability. Paul even said in chapter 1 of Galatians, remember what he said? If I preach a different gospel, if an angel preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. Paul places himself under accountability. And, and here's what you and I need to get. Oh, we need this in, in the church in America. You listen to me? Just because somebody calls himself a preacher doesn't mean they're preaching truth. Just because they look good in a, a suit and they smile real nice on TV doesn't mean they're preaching the truth. We must test everything by the word of God and not yield even for a moment to false teaching. Paul calls Peter on it. And here's the good news. Peter, listen to Paul. We know that Peter repented because in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which happened later after this event, when they're talking about the interaction between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, Peter stands up for the truth. So Peter listened to Paul, and he repented, and he got right, and stood for the true gospel once again. That's good news, isn't it? So it, it's a, it ends, it ends uh, with good news. It ends in a good way. Why? Because Paul had the courage to confront Peter with truth. Do not yield to false teaching. Number four, the gospel is in your hands. Grow in your understanding of it. Share it. Do not yield to false teaching. But fourth, live with gospel credibility. I almost preached an entire sermon on this point, but I want you to go ahead and hit it this morning really quickly, all right? What do I mean by live with gospel credibility? Well, look in verse uh, verse 10. Did you notice this? If you were reading through the passage, they agreed that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel for the Gentile world. Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the Jewish world. And so they shook hands and said, let's go and... And proclaim the gospel. Then in verse 10 it says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of just a quick little verse. You can almost miss it if you're reading through this passage. You go preach, I'll go preach, but hey Paul, don't forget the poor. Now why would they say that? Why this emphasis on remembering the poor? It is a gospel credibility issue. And, and, and here's how it makes sense. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. Just very quickly. 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to show you this. I believe this verse sheds light on that admonition to remember the poor. 1 John chapter 3 verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, speaking of Jesus, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so we know what love is by looking at Jesus who laid down his life for us. That's true sacrificial agape love, right? Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And look at the next verse. Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know what this means? If we're doing ministry and we're trying to share truth with someone that has some physical needs in their life, and we ignore those, when we have the capacity to meet those, they're not going to hear us talk about Jesus' love for them. Hey, Jesus loves you! And good luck. (laughs) 
No. If we have been touched by the love of Christ, then we should want to extend that love to people that have needs in their life. And showing that love, listen to me, helps our lives be congruent with the gospel we believe. If we believe the love of Christ that is sacrificial, then we should extend love that is sacrificial. You might say, our helping those that have needs is a living sermon that comes alongside the sermon that we speak. Now, there's a quote out there that's really popular. I've seen it on t-shirts and in frames, and, and it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It basically says, um, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Now listen to me, that's a terrible quote. It's, it's, it's necessary to use words. You've got to open up your mouth and talk about Jesus. All right? But, but, we need to make sure that our lives are not putting up a stumbling block that keeps people from hearing our message. That's why they said, remember the poor. And Paul said, the very thing I was eager to do. And look with me in, back in Galatians uh, 2, verse 13. We see the same, uh, same issue. Galatians 2, verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, along with Peter, when they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. So even Barnabas, oh Barnabas, was led astray. Mr. Encourager was led astray and, and, and would not eat with Gentiles. And he says he was led astray by their hypocrisy. In other words, their actions were not congruent with their message. That's what he's saying. And keep reading. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. And he confronts him on this issue. What's happening here? We see that Peter and Barnabas and these other Judaizers were not living in a way that matched up with the gospel they were preaching. Jesus loves everyone, but we're not going to eat with you. Right? You're saved by faith alone, but do these other things too. That's not congruent with the gospel. It's hypocrisy, right? And so we should live with gospel credibility. Here's what Josh Moody writes about this episode in Antioch. He says, if you believe in justification by faith alone, that means you have fellowship with other people who believe in justification by faith alone. Because if you don't, you're saying that whatever the difference is between you and the other is what really justifies you. That was the issue. Peter, even either believe in justification by faith alone or you don't. And if you believe that justifies you and it justifies Gentiles as well, you should have no problem eating dinner and going into their home. And to not go into their home is hypocrisy. And by the way, there are monumental implications for us in this room, right? Jesus saves everybody. Let's go to the world with the gospel, but I don't want somebody in church of a different color sitting by me. That's not congruent with the gospel, is it? Or I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus alone saves, but I'm not going to tell my neighbor about him. Or... Jesus loves you, but I'm not going to help you, right? That's not congruent with the gospel. So we should live, seek to live by God's grace, not perfectly, but with a growing gospel credibility. 
our life is in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what he means here. And that's how we are good stewards of the gospel. So the gospel is in your hands. What are you going to do with it? I remember one of our mission trips years ago. Uh, we had a partnership in Toronto. We took a group of folks over there to Toronto. And the church planners we were working with got us together one morning and said, here's your assignment for the day. We want you to get in groups of three or four folks, I think it was, and we're going to give each group $100. And your job is to spend it or use it to advance the kingdom. So go spend your money. And so we were doing things like we'd drive up and we'd buy somebody's gas just out of nowhere, just a random act of kindness, and then share Jesus with them. Let me tell you why I just did that and share Christ. And just thinking about, you know, we'd go to Tim Hortons' coffee shop, which is wonderful, by the way. We'd, we'd go to Tim Hortons and, 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 you know, buy coffee for the person behind us and, and just look for opportunities to, to, to catch people's attention, to build bridges so we could share good news with them. And we got it together. It was amazing the different ways that people use their money, very creative things, to build bridges for the gospel. And, and so... It, in effect, those church planters said, here's $100, it's in your hands, what will you do with it? Well, that's what I'm saying to you this morning about the gospel. It's in your hands. What will you do with it? Will you make sure that you don't yield to false teaching? Will you grow in your understanding of that message? Will you share it? The gospel is in your hands. Hands! Which leads me to this concluding statement. The gospel must be preserved for the good of others and the glory of Christ.